Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Master Sommelier, Executive Chef, Restaurant Owner, and Winemaker, Christopher Bates. If you're not familiar with him, uh, he has his hands in a lot of different things. He does a lot of different stuff. His hospitality group, FLX Hospitality, is out in the Finger Lakes part of New York, kind of Geneva, New York area. He has a few different restaurant concepts, also has a winery. He's also working on sour beer, too, as well. But I first learned about Chris really from Chris Dillman, who was on this podcast uh, last year. And that's where Chris Dillman went to work for Chris Bates out at FLX Table, which is kind of the fine dining restaurant that he has. Now Chris Dillman's back in Columbus. You know, he wanted to go out there and see what it was like to work and live outside of Columbus for a bit. In the later stages of his career, you know, he didn't want to miss out on that opportunity. So uh, that's something that he did. And, you know, I always wanted to have a master song on this podcast at some point. Um, I've reached out to a few, some are harder to get in touch with than others. And, and Chris is kind of local, uh, in terms of, you know, only six hours away from Columbus, Ohio. So, you know, he was totally down to do it and we were able to get it set up, uh, once he got back from doing some traveling and, and had just a really cool conversation just about his career started out as a chef. You know, we kind of go along the chef timeline of how he first got into food and restaurants and everything, and then where he kind of picked up with wine and getting really into wine and deep diving and opening his own winery with his dad, and then eventually kind of moving back to the Finger Lakes area with his wife and setting up shop and starting to open a bunch of different restaurant concepts and eateries and things like that. So he's got a lot going on. He's super ambitious dude, really nice guy too as well. He serves on the board of CMS currently too as well, so we talk about that. We also get into a little bit of the controversy um, with surrounding CMS uh, from a few years back too as well. So, you know, he didn't shy away from any questions that I had and, and didn't dodge anything. You know, he's open, honest, and, and gave his opinions and definitely respect everything that he has to say uh, about it and the organization too as well. So. It's a really interesting conversation, a really cool conversation. I was super happy to eventually check off the box of having a master psalm on the podcast. So you can follow him on a lot of different uh, social media platforms, especially Instagram. His Instagram handle is at Sommelier Bates, but uh, you can follow the restaurant group at FLX Hospitality. You can also follow the restaurants individually. So at FLX Table is the fine dining restaurant. At FLX Wienery is the burger and hot dog. That's the first concept that they ever opened. Uh, at the Quincy Exchange, which is kind of this bistro restaurant they have. At FLX Provisions, which is kind of like this marketplace. Um, a lot of local ingredients and local um, products too as well that they work with in that business arm. Uh, at Element Wines, which is the winery uh, that he opened with his dad and, and still makes wine um, to this day. And also his latest kind of project is at FLX Culture House, which is sour beer that he's been messing around for a bunch of years. And they've started to bottle some of it and are going to start releasing it and, and selling it too. And he's got a few more things in the works too as well. Uh, the Mallier Club, which is kind of like a steakhouse restaurant. They're working on hiring a bunch of people too as well and getting that um, off the ground because it's in like a three-story building with the Quincy Exchange and then also FLX Provisions. So they also have a catering um, operation too as well. So we touch on that. So we go through, you know, everything that falls under the purview of FLX Hospitality in this episode. So it's a really cool conversation, but uh, you can follow us on um, Instagram too as well, at Spoon Mob, Twitter, Facebook. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. Feel free to write in any questions, comments, feedback. Uh, either email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com, or through the website. Um, there's a little contact portal that you can submit through as well, a little 
box there um, on the contact page. But check out the website for contact information for any of our guests, food photos, different uh, links to all the different episodes too you can find there if you're not subscribed with us but uh, without further delay here's my conversation with master sommelier and owner of flx hospitality christopher bates well thanks again for coming on the podcast and i know you're a busy guy you got a lot of stuff going on the hospitality group and everything so uh, I first kind of learned about you really from Chris Dillman, who was working at FLX Table for a while as the sommelier. Um, you know, he's been a very integral part of the wine scene here in Columbus for a number of years and has mentored and taught a lot of different sommeliers that we have here locally. So, you know, then I kind of started looking into what you were doing. I was like, oh, the food looks really awesome. And it was like, oh, there's all these other properties. And it's like, oh, he's a chef. Oh. Oh, he owns a bunch of restaurants. Oh, he's a sommelier too. Oh, he's a master psalm too. So started kind of going through the rabbit hole and I was like, you know, I always wanted to have, you know, a master psalm on the podcast too as well. We've had a bunch of different people across the levels, but never a master. So you're the, the first master. But, you know, before we kind of get into all the stuff that you guys got going on now, I always like to start at the beginning of everybody's career. I mean, how did you first kind of get started? I mean, you definitely got started with cooking first. Yeah. I mean, I started cooking when I was a kid. I mean, I grew up cooking with my mom pretty much nonstop from the time I was, I don't know, a couple of years old and have done it pretty much my whole life. I started working in restaurants when I was about 14 and then never really looked back from there. I read something in like an article. It said like when you were three was like the first time you ate sushi. Is that correct? That's a true thing. I was uh, actually out visiting uh, my uncle, took us out to a sushi place. And I remember distinctly, it's really one of my first memories running around and like begging for sushi off tables. So was it a sushi roll? What kind of roll was it? You know, I remember liking the octopus. That's the really the, the most specific I can get. Table was here and I was probably here. So I think I was kind of running around like a little dog, just trying to get, trying to get sushi from everybody. Like that's crazy. Cause just, you know, you grew up in kind of a rural, you know, farming community, right? So finding sushi, I mean, you know, I live here in Columbus, Ohio and quality sushi is, is, a pretty difficult challenge <laughs> and i live in a city so well you know it's funny because back then even more so thankfully we were blessed growing up because we had a wegmans nearby back then that's really one of the things that led me to cooking was we didn't have availability of a lot of these things so if i wanted croissants i had to learn to make them if i wanted you know baguettes i mean the wegmans baguette is nice but if i wanted something a little bit more artisanal i had to make it so you know we went back and kept cooking with my mom and learning all that. And then uh, eventually realized that there was no place to get sushi again. So started learning how to make it. And I think your first job was a dishwasher, right? At 14, working in a restaurant. What made you gravitate towards the back of the house? You're kind of back there, but you're washing dishes, obviously. Is it because you get to see everybody in the kitchen and kind of see what they're doing and stuff more so than the front of the house? Yeah, you know, I kind of did both back then. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't grow up in a restaurant per se. I mean, frankly, we didn't really go to restaurants much as a kid. And so when I started working, you know, I just, I knew I liked cooking and I was good at that. Had started to kind of do stuff, more and more stuff with food. So working in a restaurant seemed like a natural thing. And, you know, I needed beer money and was trying to save up for a car and all of that stuff. So I started working and washing dishes. And eventually I was like, well, I don't really want to keep washing dishes only. And so I wanted to cook. They wouldn't let me. So I started working um, on the floor, bussing tables and got to wheel around the little dessert cart for a while. 
apparently I was, I was good with people. And so that led me to being uh, still not able to work on the, on the hotline, but I did get to go and uh, uh, start working on the brunch uh, buffet line. So started sauteing on the brunch buffet line and cooking out there and kind of one thing led to another. And I took another restaurant job and another one. And that's kind of what really got me ingrained in it. And worked between the front and the back of house even back then and really have just kind of bounced back and forth ever since. After high school, you wind up going to, I think it's the Cornell, Peter and Stephanie Nolan School of Hotel Administration. Why did you enroll there? How did you wind up there versus any, you know, other CIA or any sort of other hospitality school? I didn't actually ever have any recognition that I was going to do this the rest of my life. You know, and in high school, I was I did pretty good in school, especially for somebody who never really paid much attention. And so I always anticipated that I'd go to like a real school. And so never really thought much about what I was going to do in my real life. So when I got time to to start thinking about colleges, I was looking around and I was kind of bouncing between whether I wanted to go for sports or for cooking or for like real school, smart people school, kind of bounced back and forth between those two or those three until... Uh, Kind of by chance, I, I went to visit Cornell with a friend and found out that they were an Ivy League school and had a hospitality program. And so I was like, well, I guess that solves it. I, I'll do that. I went there so that I could kind of get the best of both worlds. And that was really what cinched the fact that this is what I was going to do for a living and not mathematics or, or physics or something like that. Was that like things that you actually seriously considered? I mean, you mentioned sports, math, or physics. Were those things that you were super interested in exploring too? Yeah. I mean, I used to ski a lot. So I used to do a ski racer. Slalom was kind of something I was considering doing potentially longer than just high school. But, you know, outside of that, it was really math and, and physics are huge things that I love. I love numbers and hence love spreadsheets today. Yeah. Those kind of things just made always made sense to me. Not, uh, I'm definitely more of a number person than I am a uh, letter person. Yeah, I don't really know too many people that ski. Being such like a solo sport, is that a lot like tennis where you're just kind of out on the mountain by yourself? You're working on different aspects of, you know, technical and, and how far you can push it and all that stuff. But it's really kind of an individual thing, even though like maybe you have a coach, right? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, when I decided I wasn't going to pursue that past high school, I really haven't ever skied since. I've probably been five times, eh, maybe 10 times since, uh, since high school, since I decided I wasn't going to pursue that as a career. But really it was, especially slalom, it was, it's such a simple thing. And it's, it's you perfecting very tiny movements. And, you know, I was just writing another version of a manifesto about culinary stuff for my team this morning. So much of what I'm, you know, I talk about and I think about is perfecting small things and just doing this one thing precisely and repeatably. And really skiing was exactly that for me. It's knowing the pattern and then figuring out how to perfectly carve through every single one of those. And I think cooking is a lot of that same thing. It's knowing the pattern, knowing how things work, and then having that technical detail to cut perfectly and how to do those things exactly. I don't know. There might be some parallel there. So I ask this to pretty much anybody that comes on the podcast with at least a culinary background. If someone in one of your kitchens, one of your restaurants comes up to you is like, hey, I'm super passionate about becoming a chef, owning a restaurant on my own one day. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? Fuck no. No, do not. I mean, frankly, colleges, 
college is what has destroyed our entire generation of people for the most part uh, and made them slaves to a system that they can't break out of. College is a horrible idea for people. Don't get me wrong. I want my doctor to have gone to college. That's not something I want them to have picked up on the job. But for the most part, this idea that everyone has to go to college to be successful, I think is one of the most amazing marketing things that I've ever seen done, but also one of the worst for people. There are a few things that obviously you're better off going to college for or that really need that. But for the most part, not everyone should be going to college and then hospitality. I can't recommend against it enough. Plain and simple, the moment you sign up for college, you will never be able to afford to do the things that you dreamed of doing. You spend all this money to learn how to cook and then you come out and you can't afford to cook for a living. So it's a really big problem. And it's, you know, it's one of the things that I think has really destroyed our industry in a lot of ways. So no, don't go to college. Take that time and learn from people who do. Take that money and invest it in your own growth. Listen, if you're going to get like the state to pay for everything or you've got like grants and, and scholarships and stuff. Okay, cool. That's great. But if you're actually considering plunking down either, you know, a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars of your money or your parents' money or the bank's money that you're gonna have to pay back in the future, frankly, take that money and use it in better ways. Go rent an apartment and work somewhere. Go work for people who want to teach and go work for people who you want to learn from. Take the opportunity to travel. Go work in Paris for a season. Go work in Norway for a season. You know, go to San Francisco. Do that. Spend the money that way. And frankly, if you're going to go to an expensive school, you know, a friend of mine reached out because her kid's getting to that age. And she asked about whether I think uh, he should go get him enrolled in the hotel school at Cornell's. You spent a quarter million dollars on that. Here's what I want you to think about instead. Buy him a restaurant. Buy him one today. Go buy a restaurant. Spend a hundred grand on it. Let him tank that restaurant. Tank it. Blow it up. Subsidize the next, you know, five years of him going around and learning from other people and then buy the second restaurant that he can actually do well. There's no better way to learn than in real life. College is not a way for our future. Don't do it. Stop, 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 stop. And at the same time for you, when you're in the hospitality school, you're also working at the Statler Hotel, right? How did you wind up there? Was it just they were hiring and you were in the area or did you know somebody or how'd that all come together? Again, I worked all through high school. I probably probably worked 40 hours a week or more because I was holding down a couple of jobs for a while. And then I got to college and I did the same thing. I mean, I was didn't have the money, so I had to live off of, I had to make the money to live and I wanted to pay off everything before I got out of college. So I worked probably 40 to 60 hours a week during college. And uh, at Cornell, uh, at the hotel school, there is the Statler Hotel, which is part of the the program. And you obviously have to do some some work there during your tenure uh, to graduate. But I started working there as a as a paid person, basically, the moment I got to school. In fact, I went and got the job before I started college. And this is kind of where you first start getting into wine too, right? After I graduated high school, before I went to college, I saved up some money and did a little um, tour of Europe. When I asked uh, my dad if there's anything he wanted, he asked for a, a nice bottle of scotch. So I spent uh, most of my time in Europe searching for a nice bottle of scotch and got super excited about it and interested in it. Started reading and studying and probably as an 18-year-old freshman, that was probably a little weird that all I drank was single malts and 
had a collection of single malts in my dorm room, but hey, whatever, it's who I am. And, uh, you know, from there, uh, my dad picked me up a wine spectator one day, thought I might want to read it. And I started to get fascinated by the tasting descriptions and what these wines sounded like and, you know, compared what I'd started to learn about single malts and their flavors and how they come about and started reading about wine and going, oh, that sounds interesting. I'd like to know about that. Hey, I want to taste that someday. And that's really what kind of got me started. Single malt scotch. I've never been somebody that's gravitated towards scotch a couple of times that I've had it. Am I missing something or is that common amongst most people where it's just something that most people don't really enjoy? It's an eclectic group or is it just it takes a while to like really appreciate the nuance of it? So first of all, alcohol is alcohol triggers our pain sensor, right? It's actually not really a pleasurable thing to consume for most people, especially early on, much in the same way that spice triggers our pain sensor, you know? So like you learn to appreciate and to enjoy typically spicier food as you get older and as you experience it and and all of those things. Um, So I think alcohol is something that kind of does that inherently. But when we look at, you know, how we get into wine and all of that, you know, most people start out drinking things that are a little easier to understand, maybe a little more fruit forward, a little bit riper, more more textured and richer things or sweeter things. And then they transition later on as they learn more and more and start to appreciate, you know, just like most of us didn't start appreciating coffee when we were little. We didn't like that bitterness. We start to like that later on in life. And so I think alcohol is much the same way. Bourbon is such an easy category to get into for people. It's sweet. It's opulent. It's like very straightforward and you know, vanilla-y and caramely and all of that, where, you know, scotch for the most part is much more savory flavors. It's much more kind of subtle, I like to think nuanced flavors that maybe aren't the most appealing early on for folks. So, but usually I think, you know, bourbon's a great way for people to start. And then I think later on, if they're exposed to it, if they make that effort to, to learn more and taste more scotch, I think scotch is something that comes around a little later for a lot of people. You're 21 and you take the intro sommelier exam. Was that something you wanted to do? Is that something that just your employer kind of encouraged you to take? You know, time of my life's a little fuzzy, but uh, I was working at the hotel school. I was working for an amazing chef there. I basically had focused everything I was doing on food and wine. So I was taking every food class I could. I was taking every wine class I could. And I really wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to anything other than those, those things and my work. And so I had seen something about a sommelier competition. So there was the best sommelier in America competition I saw advertised in some magazine. What was that magazine back in the day? Food Arts, I think. Great old school magazine. I decided I would sign up for this as a college student. I thought I would try to be the best sommelier in, in America. And I got accepted into the competition. And... Then I became terrified about the fact that I was taking this competition, which in fact included cigars, which I'd never smoked anything in my entire life. And I was like, oh, fuck, cigars are on this? So with about a month's notice, I dove into cigars and started smoking four cigars a day. Also probably a weird thing for like a sophomore in college to be doing or a junior in college to be doing. And it uh, was just like, okay, I'm going to learn everything about this. And then took my intro along with that. I saw that program and I was like, I want to do that. So kind of all of it just sort of came together. And it was the chef I was working with at the time. I didn't, you know, was thought I was crazy, but encouraged me to do all of those things. And it was what I loved. And I'm a little competitive and 
I like doing those things. I was trying to piece all this together, but I think after you graduate, you wind up going to Italy and opening your own restaurant. Ran a little place in Wisconsin for a summer and then spent some time in Chicago. And I wanted to learn more about wine, winemaking, and specifically how winemakers really taste wine. And so I was looking for a place to work in uh, Germany. I really wanted to work in the Mosul, um, as those were and still are some of my favorite wines in the entire world. So I was looking for a place in the Mosul and everybody kept saying, no, you can't do it. We won't. You're not strong enough. You're not tough enough. You can't handle it. We are only hire Polish people like you can't do it. Finally, somebody was like, sure, we'll hire you. And so I put in my notice and started making plans. And then I never heard from them again. A friend of mine had um, in Italy uh, who had a winery. And so like, I can connect you with them. So sure. Contacted them. They said, said I could come for harvest. So I changed my plans. And then like the next day I heard from the German folks and they were like, yeah, you're still coming. Right. So I went and did harvest in Italy, worked, you know, the, the four or five weeks of harvest straight and then got on the train the next, the day harvest ended and moved up to Germany and did another harvest there. Met my wife. And uh, then we decided to, uh, I've been looking for an opportunity in Italy and somebody called me back and wanted to open a restaurant together. So we went back down to Italy and opened a place there. At this point, you're not fluent in Italian, you're not fluent in German, nothing, right? Just English only? I was stumbling my way through starting to learn a little Italian. So I know it's like 20 years ago or so, but at the time, how easy was it to go abroad and work and and do those things? Did you have to do any sort of temporary visa requirements or anything like that? I mean, this is all pre 9-11 and everything and all the security things, obviously. So It's Italy and there's no, they're Italian. I tried paying taxes one year and they're like, we don't know why you're doing this. So whatever. It was definitively a, you know what, I'm just going to do this and we'll see what happens. Uh, Germany was a little different. That was one of the reasons I left Germany fairly expediently. So with the restaurant in Italy, I think it's kind of open like a year. Eventually you and and your partners kind of separate. Before coming back, did you do any traveling around or was it just like, yeah, it's time to go back to the US or? We closed down, uh, you know, we decided to kind of dissolve the, the the restaurant and partners had some family challenges and we decided that we were going to go in separate directions. So uh, my wife and I moved back pretty quickly thereafter. I mean, we've done a little bit of travel, but for the most part, the time we spent in Italy was very much focused on where we were and kind of the surrounding areas and not jumping around so much. So quite a bit of time up in Alto Adige, a little bit of time in Piedmonte, but that was about it. Might be a dumb question, but was it an Italian restaurant? Like, was it pasta heavy or was it seafood focused? Or it's tasting menu focused. So honestly, not that dissimilar to the way I cook today. It was there was some Italian influence. There was some general broad European influence, but mostly just tasting menu. It was eight or ten course tasting menu. Two thousand six, you return to the U.S. or, or maybe you're already in the U.S. at the time, but you wind up in Texas. At uh, the inn at Dos Brijas? Yeah, Dos Brijas. We went down there. Uh, we got back and we kind of bounced around for a little bit looking for jobs. That was back when you had to look for a job and we had to compete for a job even. So we went back. We went uh, and found this opportunity down in Texas and moved down there um, to a tiny little property that had just opened. Kind of dug our feet in there. And that was really the first time that I think we really... I think there was a lot of growth that we did there. Dos Brisas was four rooms and small little fine dining restaurant on 
313 acres or something like that. We had like an organic farm and horses and all of that fun stuff. So yeah, it was just a tiny little inn. And then we just opened and we took it from there to Relais and Chateau, Relais Gourmand, Mobile, back then when it was Mobile, uh, Mobile Five Star and all of those fun things. So at this property, you're the executive chef, you're the sommelier, and then you're also the GM. Is that just because it was going to be just so small that it's a one person does it all? Or was there a part of you that wanted the GM duties based on your previous experience with the restaurant in Italy, where you would have more control over certain aspects of running the establishment? I wasn't the chef. We actually had a chef there. What I was doing was, uh, you know, I started as, I think, assistant innkeeper. A few weeks after I got there, the GM quit. And then the innkeeper took the GM position. And then a few weeks later, he got fired. So I just printed out after a while, I just printed business cards that said I was the GM and never really looked back from there. I just filled the void that existed, basically running the property and running the wine program. And that was really kind of the start of managing properties for me and thinking beyond just, you know, cooking this dish or serving that wine. It was really the first time that kind of started to holistically tackle the idea of hospitality in that way. Was that something that was just like a new challenge for you to take on, kind of stepping beyond the kitchen or, you know, was it just, let me explore this. I can always go back to the kitchen. I always want to be in charge of anything I do. It was just, uh, you know, young and ignorant and overly ambitious and just wanted to move to the top as quick as I could. You know, I wanted to get to the end line and back before I realized that there is no end line. So it's really just seemed like the step up, seemed like a bigger title, seemed like a bigger thing. And I took it. Later on that year, I think, or, or maybe it was slightly before that too, kind of the dates vary, but you wound up starting a winery with your dad, right? Right around when we moved back, actually at the beginning, we started tinkering with this idea of, of questioning the potential of the Finger Lakes and what the real potential was and what was being assumed. And so we started tinkering with some wine at that time. And eventually, uh, 2009, we started to make our first commercial wine and have moved forward from there. That was like a three-year process. You guys started like filed or open trademark, whatever, 2005, 2006 timeframe, kind of. We started building the business and the brand and the label and all of that stuff. So, you know, there was a couple of vintages here and there that, that we made and to see what would happen. And then eventually went legit early 2010s with uh, a label and license. And Was this a property that you guys were able to acquire and plant your own or was there already established vines on the property or did you lease, lease and do it that way? Element was born as a negociant. So we always from the beginning wanted to purchase fruit and wanted to purchase fruit from all of the Finger Lakes. You know, we started out making, making some wines in my, my, my parents' little garage building. Then we moved down this, down the hill to a bigger old auto body garage shop and eventually uh, moved to an even larger old auto body garage shop. So um, that label has really always been about, about being a negociant and buying and working with fruit from the open market. In 2017, we bought a vineyard uh, that had been planted in uh, 2000. And that's kind of the first foray into farming our own fruit and, you know, really building what we're getting ready to launch as our, as our kind of farm wine brand. When you're starting this winery, what is the most challenging part as being kind of a first-time wine label owner, first-time winery owner? 
Is there anything that you encounter where it's like, oh, nobody told me this? Like One of the most important things that I can tell anybody is that making things is easy. Selling them sucks. I always thought that making good wine was going to be the challenge. That's, that's easy. Selling wine sucks. I hate it and I hate it. So to this day, I'm a horrible salesperson. It's great. Yeah, I think that's probably the hardest thing. And understanding how, um, how scale and margin works and that if you want to sell it all yourself, that's a ton of sales work. And if you want someone else to sell it, then you make very little money per unit and you need to make a lot of units. What's the part of the winemaking process that is most important in your opinion? Is it the growing aspect, the grapes, the processing, sales, story? Those things shift in along your path. So I think for me, the most important thing to start out with was winemaking. When I was starting and where the Finger Lakes were in their evolution at the time, winemaking was probably the most important thing that needed to be dialed in. Once winemaking is dialed in, because winemaking is so easy to create faults and problems if you don't know what you're doing and you don't know how to control it well. Once you know how to make wine, which to me means making, uh, creating a transparent process and a transparent wine, then you start to see the faults in viticulture. And then you see where, when you start to make wine, you can always screw up great grapes. But once you make wine well, then you see what those grapes potential actually could be. And that's when you start to realize that the only way to make better wine is to grow better wine. I think that there's a, you know, it's a scale, right? It's like, what's more important, how you cook or what product you get? You can get the greatest steak in the world and still burn it. But once you know how to cook a perfect steak, the only way to make that better is to get a better steak to begin with. And so I think that same thing goes for wine. Once you know how to make wine really well, you realize that the only thing left is to get better grapes to start with. 2009, you take over as GM and I believe executive chef at Hotel Fauchere? Yeah, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, my wife and I moved from Texas up to Pennsylvania. Uh, and she and I uh, took on the, the GM role together. Uh, and that was where I was running the kitchen as well. That's another property that you're running. You turn it into this award-winning property, you know, Realis and, and all these other things come to. And when you get to that point, when you start getting all these awards and kind of recognition for your work as and a chef at that moment, are there any that like are, are more important to you or that you're more proud of than the others? Or is it all just kind of like, this is great or this doesn't mean that much. I'm doing it for other reasons kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was really a time where there's another growth time for us. Uh, you know, in hindsight, I spent probably far too much time thinking about or in my role as chef and not enough time in my role as manager. I spent far too much time in my role as doer and not overseer. At the same time, you know, it was, it was really the opportunity that it was really the first time that we really dove into turning a property around financially, really dove into how to build a better financial business. That was a really, it was a really important kind of time and moment for us in that way. So I think for me, some of the biggest things that we did was how we basically turned a struggling financial model into one that was at least above break even. I think that was for me, probably the biggest success that we saw there. 
we also opened a number of uh, new concepts there. So we, you know, took over the tisserie and we opened a barbecue place and we opened more and more. So, you know, there was this growth, but really it was, it was gaining the, the financial understanding and that was the most important to us at the time. You know, maybe looking on it back now, maybe not during the time when you're going through it, but you know, that all sounds to me like almost a proof of concept for you as an individual to where you're eventually going to get to this point where you're running your own hospitality organization. You're not financially liable for everything, right? Like you're still financially dependent upon the property, but like, it's not all your money into that property. And it's like, well, let me see if I can do this. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that was really, that was our last stop before realizing that a, I was tired of fixing the problems that other people created. I wanted to create my own problems to fix. I knew that I could destroy things as well as anybody to begin with. So, you know, we really wanted to move into this opportunity where we weren't fixing other people's earlier mistakes. That was kind of really important to me in thinking through how to, like, what we wanted to do in the future. You know, we'd seen a lot of models and we'd been at fine dining and high-end stuff for a really long time. I kind of started to understand where the financial ability was there, why the, where the financial opportunities were for success and where they weren't. And that was really kind of how we started to address this moving, you know, this idea of opening our own place. We've been there for a while, started to grow a little stagnant. And, you know, I was also going through my MS um, exams at the time where Mr. Dillman and I uh, got to know each other quite well going through that. And eventually it was just, I needed, knew I needed a change in my life. I knew that I wasn't going to overcome my exams that I was trying to do if I just kept doing the same old routine over and over. And so that was really when we decided that it was time for us to kind of launch out and do our own thing. And, you know, I'd seen so many broken systems over the years and so many, you know, it's, I think I've seen how broken most hosp or the hospitality world and model really is. And we wanted to take our chances at seeing if we could create a better model in the future. So that's really what drove us to make that decision to start our own thing. With today's generation, where we're at now, do you think that people need to wait as long to open their own properties and, and th own businesses? Or should they kind of be it's like with a presidential election, right? You should always run before you're ready instead of after you think you're ready because usually it's too much bad stuff comes out about you and you tank your own candidacy. But but is it similar to that aspect where, you know, you're never really going to feel ready, but if you wait too long, it's going to do more damage than if you jump too early kind of thing? I think it's really important to understand how many times you need to fail before you'll succeed. And I think that if you think failure is that not succeeding now means failure, you're already defeated. So one of the really important things for me was all the mistakes that I've made. And one of the things that guides the best and most successful aspects of what we do is based off of all the times I messed it up in the past and all the mistakes I've made. So I think one of the really important things is getting experience by making mistakes, getting experience and learning those lessons. I wanted to open a restaurant as soon as I got out of college. In fact, I was planning on opening one while I was in college. I'm so glad I didn't open that restaurant. I'm so glad that never happened. I'm so glad I got to live through all of these, all these challenges and all these jobs that I've done and all the places that I've worked. I'm really glad I got to do that because every single one of those bad experiences shaped something about how I, about how I work today. 
and hopefully in a better way. So, you know, I think you could jump into opening a restaurant right away. Understand you're going to have a lot of failures. You make a lot of mistakes along the way. It doesn't really matter. I don't know that there's a right time to do it or a wrong time to do it. I do know that the more times you fail, the more likely you will be to succeed. You know, what is that like failure success training or something like that? Um, you know, a lot of those like motive, like those, those cheesy motivational cat posters and shit, like a lot of that stuff's really true. What is it like the more experience I have, the luckier I get or something like that. What's the Wayne Gretzky, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take or something like that kind of thing. You know, they sound a little cheesy, but it's true. I think one of the most important things for me coming through the MS program was an acceptance and understanding of what failure is and what not succeeding yet is and understanding the difference between the two. Yeah. With that, I mean, how many times did you take the master exam? Or Because you mentioned a few minutes ago, basically like, you know, you were taking the exams and you weren't getting over the hump and you're like, well, I've changed, you know, how I'm approaching this. Is that why you started doing all those competitions? Because in 2010, you do and win Wines of South Africa World Cup Wine Competition. Then like the next year, you're named Best Young Sommelier and I think take third place at the Best Sommelier in America competition. The year after that, you're named Best Young Sommelier. So like, is that why you started doing all those wine competitions? People know me for winning those competitions. They don't know me for all the times that I didn't win those competitions. You know, they know me from the last three years of those things where I started to win all of them. They don't know me from the first 10 that I was greatly outcompeted and lost horribly. And that was a really important lesson. I mean, for me, that was, it was just practice, right? Like every single time you put yourself under stress, you get better. Every single time you put yourself in a weird situation or give yourself pressure or are pushed to learn, you get better. I fucking hate not knowing something. If you ask me a question and I don't know the answer and I'm embarrassed... I'm going to go learn that answer and I'm never going to miss that question again. If I don't know something, I want to. So every single one of those competitions was just me going, oof, not good enough yet. Nope, not there. Uh, I need to know more about that. Need to know more about that. And then I just got really tired of missing questions. So I studied more. I learned more. So I'd stop missing them. So I think all of that stuff like adds up together. And, you know, I think it's funny because coming through the last two and a half years of COVID in, in business, I've had a lot of really hopeful, great opportunities to learn and to think and to, to you know, prepare myself for what is going to happen in the future. And coming to grips with the fact that someday we might not, we might have to close a restaurant. We might have to close down our company. I mean, anybody who didn't think about that during COVID is lying. What happens when we don't make it. What happens if we go bankrupt? For a really long time, my whole life, mostly, I would have thought about that as failure. And I would have looked at that as the worst thing that could possibly happen. After all the times, all the competitions I lost, after all the attempts at the MS exam that I didn't pass, I realized that when this company stops working out for me, it's fine. We're going to close it down and we're going to open a new one. We're going to open a new one better, stronger and smarter with less mistakes. And that a business failing isn't failure. It's a step along the journey towards what the final success is going to be. So, you know, like for me, that was like with the MS program, that was a really big thing. I failed that MS exam three times, or at least I thought I did. And then when I finally passed it, I realized that I never failed the exam. I just didn't pass it when I wanted to, didn't pass it again. 
when I look back now, I never failed at becoming an MS. I am an MS. I never failed at becoming the best young sommelier in the world. I am, or I was, or I did, or whatever. Like, I achieved that. And the years that led up to that, that I didn't achieve it, weren't failure. They were just learning opportunities that prepared me for it. Starting to take that and thinking about business right now is a really important part of what I've spent the last couple of years thinking about is something not working, something not succeeding isn't failure. It's just an opportunity to learn from and learn how to do it better the next time. Sticking with the master's exam, May 2013, you become the 199th person in the world to pass it, the master's sommelier exam. I think you're the first ever to pass it that was also a working chef at the time. What was the most difficult or, or challenging part of the exam for you? Was it theory or tasting or? Getting out of your own way. Tasting was the portion that hung me up, but my own fear was probably the biggest part that held me back. I passed my service, my first attempt. I passed my theory, my second attempt, and I didn't pass tasting any of the first three tries. And it wasn't until a couple of major things changed for me. I think a little bit of it was the deciding to break with the security that I had and decide to leave my job and decide to launch out on my own and make a change one way or the other. But a really big part of it was also, first of all, it was to stop trying to be like other people and to stop thinking that other people had an advantage and to stop trying to mimic what other people were doing. One of the really big and important things for me was, was actually recognizing that I was not a good taster, or at least I wasn't an instinctual taster, which is what I thought I had to be to pass the exam. And I saw other people who were good at being an instinctual taster, and I had to come to grips with the fact that I wasn't that, and I had to find a new way, a way that wasn't the way I thought, but it was the way that worked for me. So coming back and actually recognizing that I wasn't good at tasting the way that other people were, I needed to find my own path was really important to me. And then the other thing that really became important was realizing that was not caring about it anymore as much. You know, I, I say this a lot, but there's a time at which you want to be a master sommelier and you work really hard towards being that. And for me, it's you become a master sommelier when you're the best at what you do, as opposed to studying for something. It's you just become really good at what you do. And then that next step falls into place. For me, one of the things that, that became really important was that stopped being the goal. It stopped being the thing that was most important to me. It was something I wanted, but it wasn't something I needed anymore. Like I didn't need that to make my career. My career was already happening. Certainly I wanted it. Certainly it would help, but it no longer defined me and I didn't need it to define me. So that became really important was the moment that I kind of left after resetting and I went, you know what, Kid, I don't need this. You know what, I'm gonna go back and I'll give it a shot. This isn't gonna dominate my life anymore. And I went in not caring as much. And that was super, super important to me. You know, and I think the other thing was, is I spent so much time before that fearing failure that when I went in that room, I was already at a negative because I was going in thinking, trying not to fail as opposed to trying to succeed. And so, you know, that last attempt, I didn't study anymore. Like I just, I didn't really care. I kind of went in with this mentality of like, I'm already on the top of my game. I, I'm on this level. Sorry, that's kind of on you at this point. So I stopped putting the pressure on myself. I went in with the intention to pass, not with the intention not to fail. All of that stuff kind of really came together for me at that time. When they tell you that you pass, is it more joy or relief? It's a lot of bewilderment. 
it's a lot of not really even understanding what's happened. It's a lot of finally not having to make a disappointing call to my wife to let her know. So, you know, I think it's, it's a lot of both. You know, for me, again, I kind of went into that last year, not as caught up in it, not needing it. I always think about, I love the movie Cool Runnings. I think it is maybe one of my favorite motivational movies. And to me, like tracks perfectly with this path towards becoming an MS and now this path as an entrepreneur. There's that line when John Candy says, if you're not enough without the medals, you'll never be enough with the gold medals. And that to me is so like important. Like it stopped being, I didn't need the pin to be who I was going to be in, in the industry. It wasn't important anymore. I went in with that. I went in kind of going, if you don't get it, you don't get it. And I don't know that I need this anymore. When I was getting my results, I remember them, you know, kind of back before we had to just tell you right away whether you passed or failed or didn't pass. Uh, so they were the two who were giving me my results were kind of toying with me. And they were like, so what part don't you think you pass? And I was like, oh, and they were like, oh, you passed tasting. And I was like, all right, cool. I don't, I don't care. They're like, no, no, no. Like we got more feedback for it. Like, I, it's fine. I, I don't care. If I pass tasting service or theory, I'll get them next year. I don't, I'm good. They're like, no, no, no. Come back and sit down. Guys, I'm fine. I, I'm in a great mood. It doesn't matter. I don't care which other part I didn't pass. I'll get it. Finally, they were like, this isn't working at all. Just sit down. You, you passed. Okay. I was like, oh, all right. Great. I got all my joy when I found out I finally passed tasting. That was the thing I couldn't get. And that was the thing I finally got. And I was like, everything else I'll figure out. I need to study a little more next year. I'll study a little more. I need to do something different in service. I'll figure that out. That's easy. I don't know. I think it's a mix of all of those. How accurate is the master psalm exams portrayal in movies or documentaries like psalm? Is that a pretty accurate portrayal of what people go through? You know, honestly, I saw the movie. I saw part of the movie once after I passed and haven't really paid much attention. In, in, in theory, I think it's pretty good. You know, in theory, I think there's, um, I think they did a pretty good job at portraying it. Obviously, you know, you look through it and you go, that's not, it's more than that. It's blah, 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 blah. But I think in general, for something that brought what we do to the masses, I think they did a great job with it. It's hard. The three or four gentlemen that are in there had their own particular style and their own characteristics coming through it. We all have them. We all have our challenges. We all have our idiosyncrasies. And I think they did a really good job with it. Once you passed, did you ever consider pursuing any other certificates or were you just like, I'm done with the certification portion of your career? Like, I don't really want to do any W set stuff or anything like that. You know, I thought for a minute, you know, after you pass the MS exam, nobody talks about it, but there's always a period of, of, of depression that happens, you know, as you sort of have had this, this thing that's dominated your, your horizon for so long. At least three years, right? It's like a minimum of three years, probably. Even if you passed everything on the first try, like I was 12 years into the program when I passed, you know, and this thing that has been, that has created many, many years and driven many years of your life is all of a sudden behind you. And then you go, what the hell do I do now? So I definitely thought about like doing the WSET MW program. And as I said earlier on, I'm not much of a writer -ator. definitely way better at speaking and way better at numbers than I am spelling. So I was like, yeah, that's not going to be for me. Thought about doing the Cicerone program and I kind of kicked it around a little bit and maybe I'll do it again at some point. But, you know, again, those things don't drive me anymore. Being an, an entrepreneur, being an employer, providing opportunity for others, those are far more important to me than 
little letters next to a name or another pin or bobble. You know, I'd rather now I want to be successful in, in what I really care about. About a year after you pass, you open FLX Weenery uh, with your wife, Isabel, uh, back home in the Finger Lakes, uh, where you're kind of originally from. How did you guys decide that was going essentially back home was was the right choice? Because, I mean, you could go anywhere and set up anywhere. We'd started the winery at this point. We're selling the wines. And so I was continuously back and forth dealing with them and making them and dealing with that. Every time I went back to the Finger Lakes, I couldn't help but notice how absolutely stunningly beautiful it is and how much I love the place and the landscape and the scenery and all of those things. And, you know, eventually I got to a point where I'd been gone long enough that it didn't feel like failure going home. You know, it wasn't like I couldn't make it in the real world. So I had to come back. I just think it's one of the most beautiful, magical places in the world. And we started, as we were more and more involved in the scene, we started to recognize that there was still a fair amount of opportunity and development that needed to be done in the hospitality landscape in order to, you know, really build this into the wine region that we believed it can be. It was an opportunity and we saw it and we took it. The first place that you opened the FLX Wienery, it's casual fare. What was kind of the thought process behind that? Because usually people, their first restaurant is, that's the big grand idea. And you guys kind of went definitely a different direction than most people would. Yeah, well, uh, we did it with our own money, with a credit card's money. Uh, we did it on our own. There was a lot of budgetary things that weren't possible. And, you know, I think ultimately at the end of the day, for us, fancy isn't what matters. Thought and care are what matter. And it really doesn't matter to me whether I'm cooking foie gras or a hot dog. It's the amount of attention and sort of care and attention to detail that you put into it that makes the difference. Hamburgers are magical if they're made with love and thought and attention. You know, we don't need fancy to be good. So, you know, if we opened a simple place, but we open a place that's as thoughtful as any other, for sure. And, you know, I think that goes for the beverage program. Yeah, it's a wienery, it's hot dogs and hamburgers with a very small little wine list of 50 wines, but really precisely chosen wine and really precisely chosen beer and all of that. So, you know, it's really about care and hospitality more than grand dining rooms and, and shiny bars and fancy food. I don't need it to be tasting menu to be hospitality. You eventually do open your tasting menu restaurant like a year and a half later, though. So, Yeah, I mean, well, that's all about diversity and diversification. Uh, you know, I cut my teeth as general manager starting in 2007 was really like the first realization of what can happen in the world. And so as we watched that bubble burst, I wanted to be prepared for that. So a couple of things like we all know that through thick and thin, everybody loves hamburgers and everybody loves dick jokes. So the wienery was a pretty easy start into that. We wanted to do something a little bit more scratch the itch for a little bit finer dining. And we saw an opportunity. And so we opened table. And then from there, we open a fried chicken place. So, you know, it's just kind of diversifying that portfolio and not putting all the eggs into one basket. Having seen how easy that basket can be knocked over if a bubble bursts or we deal with some crazy inflation or something like that. I wanted to make sure that we were diversified for, you know, just for security. With these concepts, are these things that you were thinking about along the way throughout your career, even back to a couple properties before when 
you were opening, you know, a barbecue spot and this, you know, four different concepts at the one place. Like, is that all stuff that you're kind of filing away as you're going through? And it's like, okay, if I ever get the chance to open my own stuff, I'm going to open something like this. And I want to open something like this. We know what we're passionate about and what we care about and what we're excited about. And that drives a bit of it. It's also what the space feels like. We wanted to do something a little bit fancier than the wienery when we started. But when we found the space, that was what the space wanted to be. Like the ceilings in that place are like six foot four. So they're about here. So there isn't really a whole lot more that could be done in there. You know, it just wasn't conducive. When we found table, we didn't go looking to make table. We went and found a space that spoke to us that we were excited about and just said, what could we do here? And, you know, table really was just born from honestly, the way we cook at home and the way we have dinner parties and we have friends over. And that was really the, the driving force behind it is like, this is what we do every day when we're at home. This is how we entertain. This is how we want to eat. Maybe a little less so about, you know, five courses, but the first course, the farmer's board that's always been there, just quite literally what we make every single time we have people over at our house. Around that same time, I think Food and Wine names you Sommelier of the Year when you guys are opening FLX Table. How much does like a recognition like that help? Does it matter? You've already done your master. You're kind of done with the exams. You're opening restaurants. And then you kind of get this almost like a follow-up recognition and award. And it's like, I'm sure it's an honor, but like, how much does that kind of matter? Is it more about like, great, this will help the business versus like me individually kind of thing? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, it's all about keeping the business in the in the news cycle, right? So we don't have a PR company. We can't afford any of that kind of stuff. So, you know, everything that we've done is word of mouth and just self-promotion. So every little piece like that is hugely impactful for us. And, you know, it helps that we're in this tiny little weird market and we've done these weird things and people are always, you know, surprised by the juxtaposition of like all those fancy titles and then the wienery. So, you know, it helps with that, but, you know, really it's about staying on people's minds and, you know, continuously reminding people that we're here. So yeah, those things are huge. 2019, you were a judge at the Cantor World Wine Awards. What does a judge duty entail at something like that? Wine judging is, is its own beast and in industry. Um, and I've had the opportunity to do many. The Cantor and Texom are, are, are really great wine competitions to judge. Basically, I mean, you're tasting 100, 120 wines in an afternoon. And along with another panel or with a panel of judges, you're rating or rating these wines as to, you know, how they, how they show for the category, their class and their style. So, you know, you're really just going through and assigning medals or awards based on how a wine looks, smells, tastes, feels, all of those things. Is that more of just something you enjoy doing? Is that collaboration aspect where you get to meet all these other individuals or, you know, what's kind of the driving force behind wanting to do it? Or is it just trying to stay sharp? I remember reading about the Cantor Wine Awards when I was just getting into this and like the icons and the legends who, who got to judge at these things. So, I mean, that was really getting to do that was just such a great honor to, to all of a sudden be amongst your, the, these legends to be involved and be doing something that, you know, you've associated with these people for so long. So it's such a great honor to do that. Honestly, a lot of it now is socialization, you know, getting to hang out with peers at least once a year, that kind of thing. So, you know, I always like to go to those events and, you know, it's just seeing people I don't get to see all that often, seeing people who, you know, I share similar interests with and 
really like and we run in the same world but we're all running so fast and so far and we don't get a chance to see each other that often so it's really nice to do do those competitions and do those shows and those expositions and just keep up with people 2021 so you know after the start of the pandemic you guys opened three different properties all in the same building flx provisions which is like your kind of marketplace retail shop the quincy exchange which is like a bistro style restaurant and malliard club which is a like steakhouse and raw bar restaurant like i said it's all in the same building was that always kind of the plan to have three concepts in the same building or did it just kind of materialize that way we'd started looking for we'd started to grow interested in the corning market and we had been looking for a place for a while that would you know as, as kind of a juxtaposition to table that would let us sell wine um you know table's amazing because we get to pour the most amazing wines in the world but we didn't really have a place where like we sold wine and could move wine and so we really wanted to to do something along those lines and we knew we wanted to open a steakhouse we thought that a steakhouse might be that place for us and so we started looking for spaces and through a series of happenstance uh got a call about uh the steakhouse in corning that may be looking for a transition and so they asked if we were interested and we immediately were and so we jumped on the opportunity but it was such a big space such a big space i'm not one for building the church for easter sunday i'd rather uh build it small and have it full every day than have it full once a year so we kind of looked at all this space and thought about how we could carve it up into really unique smaller concepts that were unique to each other and different and and knew that we wanted to open essentially these three different concepts in here that total kind of package thing where there's you know three different businesses all in the same building or on different floors of the same building is starting i feel like to gain a little bit more traction there's a couple of people in the dc area that have done it and different markets and stuff like that do you think that's going to be something that more and more hospitality groups kind of look at because there is that consolidation of well you only have one rent you know it's easier to bring in different source for different ingredients and stuff like that like that's a big proponent of what jose andres does is he always has like three or four restaurants in the same area they're not always in the same building but when you asked my first thought was like really is something that like minibar was kicked off um back in the day so you know back when minibar was in what was that in i forget which restaurant that was in haleo or something but um yeah i mean i think for efficiency it's really important you know one of the things as a group that we're really kind of clamoring towards as quick quickly as we can is you know how we can approach consolidated buying and purchasing power um you know how we can utilize our different concepts so that we can start buying whole cattle instead of individual cuts and so how we can you know use that power and that diversity to give us you know unique outlets but when it's all in one building there's there's a lot of advantages to being able to operate different concepts different smaller concepts with a lot of the same infrastructure you know i mean it's real simple but it's one wi-fi bill it's one walk-in it's one dry storage it's one all of these individual things that don't necessarily scale by being in the same building so it makes perfect sense to me beast and co catering is the arm of the hospitality group that does the large events weddings parties stuff like that have you guys seen an increase since kind of covid the lockdowns expired and and everybody's gotten back out there and because like here in columbus we used to live across 
uh, me and my wife used to live across the street basically from a small wedding venue but as soon as they were able to start doing weddings and stuff again it was just every friday saturday sunday they were just having events so i was curious did business just drastically like uptick for that as soon as people were like allowed and ready to start hosting events and stuff like that again yeah inquiries and, and opportunities certainly did unfortunately like many we've had to turn down most of them because we just don't have the team or i can't guarantee that we'll have enough team members to to handle all the business you know i think a lot of us have ended up having to cancel catering opportunities because we just don't have enough staff so there's certainly a ton of opportunity and a ton of business out there it's just the ability to actually capture it and handle it right now that i think is holding everybody back is the staffing for you guys is that because of your location you know the finger lakes isn't you know, it's populous, but it's not Chicago. It's not, you know what I mean? Like you're pulling from different people. Everybody's obviously got to take a car to wherever they're going to. So there's, you don't really have that public transportation aspect either. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you go to Chicago, every single business has a sign in the window saying we're hiring all positions right now too. You know, it's really easy to look at the or the employment crisis that we're having right now and to think that it's uh, specific to your circumstance, right? We do it all the time and we think all the time that, oh, it's, they left, everybody left the hospitality industry. The hospitality industry has lost all their employees. There's nobody in the hospitality industry. There's no one in any industry. Everyone is short on employees. There's no fire department people. There's no police. There's no grocery store workers. There's no truck drivers. Most industries are struggling for employees right now. Sure. You, I'm sure you can think of one or two that might not be, and I'm sure there's one or two companies that aren't right now. Uh, but the reality is, is that there is not enough American workforce for the amount of jobs that currently exist. And this is going to be the driver of the future for the next 15 years. With how many people that unfortunately died because of COVID, like a majority of those people were basically just pulled out of the workforce. There are vacancies just from those people alone that unfortunately, you know, passed away from that, you know, virus and everything too, as well, that I don't think we really, a lot of places just kind of block that aspect out, you know? That's one aspect of it. This was already in motion before COVID. You know, we always want to glorify the past and, and think that this is a problem now. No, there's been staffing problems in most industries for the last 10 years. It's really been an employee game. It's not just COVID. This didn't just happen. This didn't happen when, you know, there was extended unemployment and all of those things. It may have amplified it and it certainly made it feel stronger. But the reality is, is that we're already on this path. We've had, you know, declining birth rates for the last 30 years. We have the largest generation in the history of the Americas, the baby boomers, at retirement age. They were retiring a million people per year prior to the pandemic, and they retired at 3 million per year during the pandemic. That's created this employment vacuum that's sucked everybody up through it. Now, the other thing is, is that the baby boomers, I believe, acquired more generation, they're more wealth than has ever been acquired in human history. And we have something along the lines of the, the highest rate of prime age male workforce is living with their parents now than has done so in like the last 40 years. And we've got 20 plus years of anti-immigration policy. Yet kind of add that together and we have less workers than we have ever had. We have an immense number of new jobs, industries, 
and job styles. You know, we look at how the, what the gig economy has created. We look at all the tech jobs that didn't exist 20 years ago. And we look at all the jobs that are being created because the boomers are retiring and want all these experiences and there's no one to create those experiences for them. So we've got less people in the workforce and more jobs. And, you know, we almost touched on this earlier, but the reality is, is that the new workforce and the style and, and what they're looking for, for their careers and their lifestyles is flexibility. And it's not something that a lot of traditional jobs offer. You know, you can log in and drive Uber any time of the night, whenever you feel like it. You can do your coding for, for computers at any time. But if you want to work in a coffee shop, you need to be at work at 6.30 and stay open until 2.30 every day. Doesn't matter, like every day. And that just isn't jiving with a new generation. So you got more jobs, you got less people to fill them. That's where we are now. FLX Frybird, that's your fried chicken concept. Is that in the pop-up stages or is that something that you guys are going to spin off to its own location? Oh, it's already its own location. Oh yeah, Frybird started in a fairly small little location and has now moved to down the street to a much larger location. So yeah, no, that's definitively a full-fledged restaurant and one that I hope we get a chance to open multiple of in the future. So that would be kind of the franchise, multiple location kind of arm of the, the group? We opened a second wienery during, during COVID. We had plans prior to COVID of opening multiple wieneries and multiple Frybirds in the future. And then you're also working on a little bit of a passion project, FLX Culture House, which is like your sour beer. How did you kind of first guy with his wine background, you know, obviously that's not all you drink all the time, but now you're also, you know, messing around with sour beers too. Yeah. I mean, over the years, I've always cycled between beer and wine cocktails. I got really back into beer really heavy in probably 2008 or 2009. I started to get really interested in beer again after many years of focusing on wine and uh, started brewing and I've kind of done it ever since just homebrewing stuff and I don't do anything on a small scale. So, you know, I always had some barrels of beer floating around the house. And uh, when we started Table, uh, it was an opportunity for that we were looking at with how we license our, our businesses. And so we decided to start this little brewing project. So started brewing some sours and putting them away in the cellar. And after six years of doing it now, we're, uh, that's actually coming to fruition this week, uh, or in the last couple of weeks, we finally started to uh, bottle those. So we've essentially made cuvées out of pretty much all the barrels that have been stacking away. And we started to bottle some, some wild ales this week, or uh, we started two weeks ago, and I hope we're going to finish next week. And at the same time, we started working with our, our one of our partner breweries. And um, so we've been brewing a, an IPA for about a year and a half now. We started brewing a unfiltered pilsner that we're really excited about and hopefully we'll be launching a couple of new beers under that label in the next couple of months do you still lecture at the international culinary center i haven't since covid started uh, and frankly i just haven't had the time since they're back in session you know one of the great things about covid is it brought a very abrupt stop to all of my travels and uh kind of reshifted some of our you know focus and priorities so there was a you know a really hard stop in how much teaching i've been doing and now as it's starting to open back up, I'm just able to be a little more select in where I spend my time and how much time I spend on the road. 
With everything that you've accomplished uh, across your career, how do you find the time? Like you're a restaurant owner, you're a chef, you're a sommelier, you're making beer, you're making wine. Is it being extremely organized? Is it singularly focused on one thing at a time? Is it not sleeping? I would say that those are three examples of things that I am not at all. You know, it's having a great team and having trust in them. It's building a team that has the same vision and has the same beliefs, really being able to work with them to make all that stuff possible. I mean, nothing I do would be possible without the team that that makes it happen. You know, and I think in some cases, it's uh, a little bit of throwing caution to the wind and taking some chances and accepting that um, not everything's going to be perfect. There's going to be mistakes along the way. You know, if you're not, if you're not comfortable with mistakes, then you cannot... (laughs) You can't live the lifestyle that I live, that's for sure, because we're just going to, they're going to happen. And we just accept it and deal with it as it happens. Out of all your possible titles, you could introduce yourself, uh, someone to a stranger, you know, Somalia chef. What one would you choose? What one's uh, your favorite? Christopher. That's it. I'm not much for titles and I don't really like to talk really much about what I do, to be honest. So, you know, I think if I had to, what's the most important thing that I do today? It's really be an employer. You know, there was a really long time that uh, I wanted to be a chef. There was a really long time that I wanted to be a general manager. There was a really long time that I wanted to be an owner. Eventually, I think I became an entrepreneur. And now I really just think of myself as an employer. And that's the most important thing. You're still involved with the quartermaster sommeliers. You also teach uh, too as well. I mean, they, they had a controversy a short time ago and you know the Somalis that we've had on the podcast, uh, it's a younger generation mostly, and a decent amount of them is kind of they've been turned off to the court, kind of taking a wait and see approach to see you know what changes are made and, and everything like that. What's your take on it? Is you're involved with them? Is that something you've you've seen changes internally, and and you're proud of the direction that they're going? You think it needs more work? In transparency, I'm on the board of directors, and I've been on the board of directors since uh, 2019. So I've been through a lot on the board of directors. Certainly there, have, there were problems in, in our organization. There was challenges, um, problems in pretty much any organization that's been around for a while. And there were certainly mistakes that were made. I have always been proud of the achievements of, of my own achievements. I've always been proud of the achievements of, of fellow master sommeliers. And overall, I think that um, the organization is done a lot of great things over the years, certainly has had some missteps and made some mistakes. Um, But I've been really, and I am very proud of of the progress that we've made and of, you know, how hard we've all worked to build the organization to what it is and how we've worked to make the changes that needed to be made. So, you know, we've had challenges. Everybody does. Uh, I think it's not about you know, certainly it would be great to have not had those challenges, really done a lot to, to address them and to, to try and, and build a better future for, for everybody involved. When you look at this kind of up and coming or, or next generation of sommelier, you know, what do you see? Do you see it being more women uh, than men? Or do you see people that are probably going to do, you know, maybe one or two levels of the certification and then strive out on their own business or... No, I think the industry is, is changing in a lot of ways and certainly our kind of access to information uh, is changing a lot. I think that what the quartermaster sommeliers does 
what its potentials are for education are really amazing and huge. And I would say the same thing about a lot of the other organizations that are out there, WSET and, and, and things like that. For me, the structure of that, kind of the push that, that going for an exam, that the drive for succeeding an exam all really helped me and helped me grow to be a better sommelier, a better professional. You know, I talked about it earlier, but to me, a better business person, an entrepreneur now, those were really important to me. They aren't for everybody, but I do think that a lot of the, the, the best educational programs out there have a really strong future as we look towards, you know, the ultimate goal at the end of the day is to help more people achieve pleasure from, you know, the things that we enjoy. I want to help other people get the same pleasure out of wine that I get. I want to help other people drink better. I want to help other people, you know, discover all of these things. At the end of the day, I want to, I want to make better drinkers. That's my goal. So I think that the future is, has a lot of opportunity for that. And I think as we look at how the world is changing and how many more opportunities there are to create, to help people learn more about beverage, I think it's amazing. And yeah, I look forward to seeing kind of the future of the quartermaster sommeliers. I look forward to seeing the future of the profession of sommelier. You know, there continues to be this ongoing question of, oh, is the, is the sommelier going away as, you know, we get apps for our phone to tell us about wine and all that stuff. You know, for me, it's all about hospitality and remembering that at the core, we're not encyclopedias about wine. We're people who offer hospitality and know a bunch about wine and can help you with that. Trying to figure out how to phrase this the best, but had a few people on the podcast and, and one of their kind of, I guess, complaints about the wine industry is and taking exams and stuff. Is there certain, you know, wines and vintages that are just at these astronomical price levels and it's just, you know, you're expected to know them, but the the barrier to entry on a price or cost of a certain bottle or certain wine that is a, a staple is just pretty much out of reach for a lot of people. And then you look at inflation and prices rising and supply and demand, and, and it all kind of relates to that. But do you kind of worry or think that there'll be a shift in kind of the the wines that maybe are the, the big celebrity famous wines? Do you think there'll be a, a shift away from kind of those because of their price points towards more approachable things? No, no, I don't. I mean, I hope that we're experiencing a bubble and that it bursts at some point because, you know, the wine, the wine world has become in many ways a trophy world for people. And that certainly is a challenge and a problem. You know, I think I was, I kind of was on the cusp of, of, of seeing that happen. I remember when I was in college, I bought my first bottle of first growth and it was 250 bucks back then couple of years later, those bottles were $1,200. Not that 250 is approachable or, or affordable, but it certainly is more affordable than a thousand. So, you know, I think I was on that kind of cusp of watching a lot of, of wines become unattainable for, for people. And again, remembering that for some people, a $15 bottle of wine is out of reach. For some people, a $5,000 bottle is out of reach. For some people, a $100 bottle is out of reach. Like everybody has a, a point on this scale and wine is an expensive product to make. It'll never be accessible to everyone, everywhere, ever. But certainly I think that what's happened in the last 10 years, 20 years of 
these wines becoming trophies is, you know, it's, it's challenging. I don't think it's going to go away. And I think that it's important to remember that what we drink changes constantly. So sure, I don't get to drink first growth Bordeaux very often. And I certainly don't get to buy first growth Bordeaux anymore, but it doesn't mean that I don't find something to replace that. When all of a sudden Chablis has gotten really expensive lately and the style has changed a lot, I don't really drink Chablis anymore. I drink Muscadet instead, you know? And now as Muscadet's style changes and I'm pretty sure is going to start to get really expensive really soon, I'm going to move to another place that I'm not going to tell anybody about because I don't want that to get expensive too. So, you know, we're always changing what we drink. And, you know, the same thing goes, I think, across all spectrums. You, you still need to know about, uh, about Domaine de la Romani Conti or Rousseau. You still need to know about Chateau Latour. Doesn't mean that you drink those wines every day, but you need to be familiar with them to be really able to, I think, understand all the other aspects of the wine industry. You don't, again, you may not have ever tasted it, but you still need to know it. If you're an architect, you may not have been to the Empire State Building, but you should probably be familiar with it, I assume. You know, as an artist, you might not have seen every, you know, Picasso, but you should be aware of who Picasso is and things and, and what the art is. Like, I know we can't all have everything that we want. You know, wine, I think, lives in that funny thing of like, we can, we can look at those bottles and say that they're irrelevant because they don't live in my sphere doesn't mean you shouldn't be cognizant of them. You know, I think that theory and knowledge is important. When you're building out the wine lists for your different restaurants, what's your methodology? Because I saw like, I think the the Mallier Club has like 1,200 to 1,500 like bottle selection there. So it, most of it, I think is from the Finger Lakes, correct? No, no. That uh, When that property finally is able to open, once I get, once I find enough staff, um, that, that list will be we'll have a pretty big um, component of Finger Lakes, but really the focus there is going to be on um, old California, old Bordeaux, old Burgundy, old Rhone, kind of wines that I love that we don't see a whole lot of availability for anymore. And we see oftentimes as kind of unapproachable, but my goal is to, is to make those approachable for people. So you essentially are kind of taking the wine list and, and matching it to the property, essentially, is kind of how you go. I want the wine list to fit to the theme, the concepts, um, you know, and, and at the same time, I want it to, you know, it's a tool for me to help people be better drinkers. So my goal with a wine list is certainly to put things that people want on there, but also to put things that people should want on there, even if they don't know they do yet. Um, so, you know, it's it's trying to build a little it's built into the concept. It's kind of baked into what we see a need for in, you know, the location or the market or the time. And then it's how do we, how do we help people make better, better drinking decisions? Well, we don't give them bad options. So, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of that that goes into every wine list. Is there a wine region, wine style that you find yourself kind of gravitating towards? You know, usually every sommelier has that that region that they first fell in love with, whatever that was. So I guess that, you know, essentially what was that or what is that for you? Uh, you know, I, I like really old wine. Um, I really like a very British palate in that way. I like my wines dead and decrepit. So, you know, it's and it's funny because I think in that way, you know, when I when I started getting into wine, like old wine was, 
1980s or early 90s. And that's still where my cutoff for old wine starts, even though it's 20 years later now. Um, so, you know, back when I was getting into wine in 2002, if I had a bottle of 92 Cabernet, I was like, this is, yeah, this is old wine. If I had a bottle of 88 Cabernet, I was like, this is old wine. Well, those wines are 14 years old then. They're 34 years old now. So I don't know that my, I feel like my calibration still hasn't changed along with that, but I do gravitate towards that. I mean, I love old school California from 60s, 70s, and 80s. Love old Bordeaux. And I still love Riesling. I'd say probably new obsession, you know, I've really, the Rhone has really become a, a, an area that I can't live without. And then sherry, simple white wines. Those are my daily grind. Is there a wine region that you're excited to focus on in the near future or see what comes out of or how it changes? Other than the Finger Lakes. Um, yeah. You know, I, I really love the wines of Northwestern Spain. So there's, you know, like the cool, like a lot of the mountain stuff, Barisacra and all of those areas. I love those wines and I'm dying to see more of that. Same thing with um, uh, Savoie. Like I really dig those, those wines from Savoie and I need to taste more. I need to learn more and I just can't wait to see, to learn more about them. Are you able to enjoy a dinner out or do you compulsively check the wine list when you're at a restaurant, see what they have? Definitely like to look at wine lists, but more often than not, I prefer to stay at home and cook far more than going out. Best Chris Dillman story that you have, and you can go in any direction that you want with this. Most of my favorite Chris Dillman stories are stories that Chris Dillman told me. You know, Chris, uh, Chris and I have sat many exams uh, together. And um, we have been unsuccessful at many exams together. So I think most of my favorite times with him are hanging out and uh, after the fact or while nervously awaiting results and drinking shitty beer and eating burgers or wings or fries and just kicking it and chilling. How has the food and restaurant industry in the Finger Lakes changed since you've been involved? What do you think needs to change and where do you think it's headed? A very politically charged question there and one I've prefer to stay away from. You know, I think that, I think that there has been uh, a lot of great progress in hospitality in the Finger Lakes. You know, I think the restaurant scene has definitively started to change. And, and, and you know, there was a couple of great leaders in the community um, who have continued their work. But I think there's a lot of new, fresh faces and voices that are really starting to, you know, come on the scene. And, you know, I think in, in the long term, as, as the region changes, we need to make sure that, you know, the future that we're creating all of the experiences that the future customer is going to want. And so as we look at, you know, the, the wines garnering attention and drawing people interested in that, those experiences in, we need to make sure that we have the hospitality experiences that that customer is looking for. So, you know, that means making sure that our lodging is, that we have great lodging opportunities for people, that we have really experiential lodging and that we have really great restaurants for the future customer, for the people who are learning about the wines that we're making today and are starting to engage with them. We need to make sure that we have the opportunities that they might, that they might want in other luxury wine regions. So I think that's a really important next step for us. 
What's next for you professionally? I mean, uh, you guys are always kind of working on something, you know, you got the, the beer thing is getting ready to kick off, you know, working on, you know, filling some open positions and two, but you know, any additional concepts kind of in the work, would you, you know, something like a vegetable only restaurant because of all the, the farms that you guys have around or what's next? What's next is rebuilding. We've had a lot of setbacks since COVID and we've had a lot of struggles and we're, we've been so desperately understaffed for so long. Really, there is no opportunity to talk about anything else until, until that structure's fixed and until we've rebuilt what, you know, to the point where we were. 2019 was the year that we focused specifically on building structure internally. And 2020 was our year to let that structure start to gain the experience of opening a few properties. We were meant to open six places in 2020 with the idea that 2021 and 2022 would then be letting that structure run. Honestly, the next year is really about rebuilding that structure, rebuilding the foundation to do what we currently have open well, and then building it with the idea of going back to that 2020 growth plan. Right now it's, it's rebuilding. Handful of more questions for you. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, so we always get a nice compare and contrast. You get a couple uh, extra ones because you're a chef and sommelier and restaurant owner. But before that, I always have a previous guest leave behind a question for the next guest. So uh, Chef Zach Wiener of Jollity Restaurant in Dayton, Ohio was the previous guest. And the question he left behind was, if you had to choose one person to teach your parents how to cook professionally, who would it be? Me. My mom taught me how to cook professionally, so I don't know that I, I guess all I could really offer to her is efficiency, but yeah. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? It can be anything. What was the, what was the last meal you cooked for yourself and what made it special? Next question comes from one of our listeners. Uh, they wrote in, when you look back at your career, all the awards, honors, accolades and everything, is there one that you kind of look at that you're most proud of? whether it's becoming a master SOM or, you know, winning a competition or getting the, the mobile, you know, five-star award at a property? Well, it may not be an award. I'd say the thing that I'm most proud of is, is the fact that we've been able to continue to be employers through all of the ups and downs of the last eight years. Award in particular and specific, you know, it was probably when we got, when, 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 uh, our first place got into uh, Relay and Chateau when the Dos Brises got accepted into Relay and Chateau. It was probably the biggest achievement at the time for us and really kind of set, some, set us up with the idea that anything could be achieved. That was probably a big one for me. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career looking back at it so far? Aside from my parents, um, who you know taught me how to cook and taught me resilience and taught me how to work and taught me how to always do. Professionally, I would say it was probably uh, Craig Hartman from uh, the Barbecue Exchange in Virginia. I worked with him. He was the chef at Statler when I was there during college and has just been a huge inspiration then and ever since. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? And blender. One thing in a restaurant that you would not fix yourself if it breaks? I don't think there is anything at this point. For most people, it's usually gas or electrical related, I feel like. Nope. I've learned both of those over the last seven years. What's the one thing I really, I really don't like dealing with sewage. Toilets are probably the one thing I'd really rather not deal with. What is your desert island wine? German Riesling. Sweet German Riesling. Or semi-dry. Semi-old school cabinet German Riesling. 
restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I usually give is, uh, you know, person gets stuck at the airport, nearest airport to the Finger Lakes there. Uh, you guys aren't open. Um, you guys are closed and they reach out to you and, hey, wh- you know, where should I go eat? You point them in this direction. Hand and foot. Just rock and booze selection. Great bourbon, great whiskey, great mezcal, great sherry, good cocktails. Hand and foot. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. So is there any place that you haven't traveled to that you still want to go to and any restaurant that you've never eaten at that uh, is still high up on the list that you want to get to one day? Uh, I've never been to Greece and I want to go to Greece so badly uh, for a wine producing destination. For other destinations, it is probably rural Japan, rural northern, real southern Japan, outside of commercial centers. Destination restaurant. I don't really know where I want to go anymore. I stopped really ever wanting to do fine dining anymore. I don't have the patience for it. I don't like sitting there that long. So I don't tend to do much of that. I don't know. I mostly just really like simple things and going places with friends and people I want to see. So uh, I don't I don't have a restaurant off the top of my head that I'm dying to get to that I've never been. Got lots that I've been to that I want to go back to. But craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you were working. There's a lot of crazy things I've seen happen. Most of them are pretty gross, pretty graphic. Chris had a pretty graphic uh, a story for us. So, I mean, feel free to fire away. There's, like I said, there's, there's no restrictions here. Maybe one of the stranger things that I've ever seen happen was at a property I ran uh, where we had some guests arrived and I give them a little wine class. And my wine classes didn't offer, didn't, weren't big pours. So it was a very controlled amount of wine that they had. Shouldn't have been a problem for anybody. And they went back to their rooms for a little while and came back for dinner not long after. Didn't really have anything to drink. When they came back, seemed fine. Started them off with their tasting menu and their wine pairings. We were maybe two and a half pairings in when the young lady went uh, face down in her soup. And the gentleman didn't seem to really have any concerns or cares. Got her up and out of her soup and cleaned up a little bit. She proceeded to start throwing up at the table, to which the gentleman just kept going, just kept eating. Everybody around her was getting uncomfortable. So I I helped her to the restroom. He just kept asking for the next course. It's like, I think, you know, would you, should we stop this dining experience? He's like, no, you can just keep bringing it. Okay. So I took this young lady to the restroom and helped her get cleaned up. And clearly, obviously, we stopped pouring for her and he just, kept going. And he was a doctor, by the way, as well. And um, finally, I, I had to say, listen, I, I'm sorry, but your dining experience here is, is over. I'm going to need to call some medical attention if you something's happening here. And he didn't seem concerned at all. He's like, it's fine. I'm a doctor. I'll, you know, she's fine. Okay. She just needs to, you know, get some sleep and sleep it off. Okay. So they went back to their room and about a half an hour later, he called me to let me know that they were going to be leaving the property because we had a gated entrance. And I was like, okay, I, you know, is everything all right? And he's like, yeah, she forgot something at the house. I'm going to go back and get it. Okay. Or he left and about six hours passed. My wife and I are sitting there going, did he kill her? Like, is that what happened? Did he poison her and then take her back and just leave her and go? And it's about two in the morning and he still hasn't come back, come back. And we're really worried. So we went over to check on her and I'm knocking on the door saying, ma'am, if, ma'am, I need to hear your voice. Ma'am, if, if you don't answer, I'm going I'm to have to open this door. All of a sudden, the curtain flies open, and there she is going, what do you want? I was like, you okay? Just want to check in? Just want to make sure you're okay? And uh, we get back to uh, our house or slash the office, and phone's ringing like crazy. And he's at the gate, and he's pissed off because he's been at the gate for five minutes. Like, he must have gotten there right as we left to go check on her. 
And so we let him in and next morning acted like nothing ever happened. I have no idea what happened, but everybody was fine. Everybody lived. So that's probably one of the weirder things was trying to explain that to the guests around them at dinner. Strange people, strange things. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that, you know, you know is terrible for you. Fast food, candy, whatever that you just can't help yourself. I think like McDonald's and Burger King are really delicious, but I haven't, I've managed to not eat them for probably 15 years. So I, my opinion might have changed now. I would say maybe my guiltiest pleasure that I partake in is uh, my love of Lindemann's Frambois, which I think is absolutely one of the most delicious beers on earth. Yeah, I think that's probably my worst. Maybe Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Haven't had one in years, but man, when they're around, they're irresistible to me. Wine recommendations. So for everybody listening, so we kind of broke this down into just four different categories that we always ask for, give the psalm an opportunity to kind of point out some different uh, regions and different things that they're excited about. Drink more sherry. So $20 and under, $50 and under for a bottle, $100 and under, and then over $100, no limit. Like, What would you recommend? What would you point out to somebody? Jeez. Do they like white wine or red wine? They like whatever. They're just this this blank slate. Under 20 bucks. Castello de Verduno's Hella Verga. Light red wine from Piedmont lately. Of course, if we were talking about white wine, I'd have to suggest Muscadet. Under 50 bucks. I really like some Chablis. Moro nowadays, like entry-level stuff, comes in under 50 and is really friggin' delicious. Sebastian Dovisac. I love their wines. And I think they fall into that category. I think they're old school, like classic, slightly dirty Chablis. I love it. You know what I'm drinking for under 50 bucks? If I can find it all day, every day, I'm drinking Fauri Saint-Joseph via Vigne. If I can find it. If I can't, entry-level Saint-Joseph from Fauri is amazing. A hundred bucks? I want to drink Bernard Levet's Cote Roti all day, every day. I love that wine. I can have anything I want, like anything, anything, anything. I want El Maestro de Sierra's one in seven Oloroso. Or I want really old Napa Cab from Ridge, Dunn, Mondavi Reserve, Martha's Vineyard. Favorite Instagram account you follow? There's so many different favorites for different reasons. Um, I really like, uh, there's a brewery, I think it's called Bearded Iris. And I really like their Instagram account because every single one of their beer promotion photos makes me want to drink that beer, even if I know I'm not going to like it. Like, they do a really good job of their photography with their beers. I want Every time I see it, I want to drink one. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created? If you kind of look back through your career, especially the cooking side of things, you would kind of point to this dish as your aha moment, like you knew you could be a professional chef. I don't know that I've had it yet. Um, I mean, I guess back in the day, I really, like my favorite things that I would do at home were were all, was a lot of like baking. It was cakes, croissants. Like I started making those when I was really young. So croissants I really liked, pretzels. Like that was probably it when I was a kid. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment episode scene uh, about him that stands out to you the most? Or if you weren't, was there another kind of culinary professional that was on TV, uh, Emeril, Jacques Pepin, uh, anybody that you kind of gravitated towards while you were coming up through your career? Not really. I mean, I didn't pay much attention to most of that. I remember the old Yan Can Cook shows, but you know, I think maybe more more important for me was the joy of cooking books than anything else. 
And when it came to like professional chefs that I would, who I obsessively followed for a really long time, say it was Thomas Keller and probably Heston Blumenthal at different phases of my life and interests. Where can people find you? Social media, websites, reservations, plug everything. Mostly fixing things under sinks. You can find me at Sommelier Bates on the social medias, on the internets at uh, flxhospitality.com, elementwinery.com, or um, colloquialwines.com. You can find me uh, via email on any of those websites. You can hit me up on Instagram. I don't use any of the others anymore. So I'm on the Instagram and hopefully I won't be for long. This is awesome. I appreciate you taking uh, the time out to to do this and, and coming on the podcast, the first master sommelier that we've had on, but more importantly, like you said, a, a restaurant owner and an employer for a, a region that is a budding tourist destination, I think is kind of where they strive to be. So we haven't been to the Finger Lakes yet, but definitely want to get out there and, and try some of the food and, and the wines and stuff that you guys are are doing for sure. So hopefully uh maybe you know sometime this fall be able to kind of venture out there we're not too far away i think it's only like a four or five hour drive like it's not bad come anytime and uh if you see mr dillman around your area say hello for me absolutely miss him and uh yeah thanks for having me it was a pleasure a big thanks again to christopher bates for coming on the podcast taking some time out of his morning to chat about his wine career chef career his restaurant owner career winemaking career so again you can follow him at sommelier baits also at flx hospitality and then there's a whole bunch of different offshoot accounts for all the restaurants the winery element wines the brewery you know sour beer arm flx culture house so if you go to his instagram page or the hospitality instagram page in the little bio section that'll kind of give you all the links um, to follow all those so Make sure to check them out. They got a bunch of different concepts kind of spread around that area. Haven't uh, made it to that area myself, but uh, definitely want to go and check out and see what they have. Um, You can also order wine from them too that they produce that they'll ship to your door. So definitely check out everything that they have to offer. I know Kendi Warden of the Grape Grind recently went out to that kind of region a couple months back and was posting pictures and stuff too as well. So it looks like a pretty cool spot, um, especially if you love Riesling, which is a prominent wine there in that region. So Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. Subscribe to the podcast, whatever podcast platform you listen to podcasts. We're on all of them. Check out the website. Feel free to email us or drop a question, comment, anything in the little contact box, contact page on the website there. But that is it for this week. We will talk to you guys next week.